Looking to provide your school or organization with high-quality audio products at affordable prices? Andreas Communications specializes in designing microphones, headsets, USB adapters, webcams, and more to ensure online reliable communication. Their EDU series of products are built to withstand the rigors of classroom usage. Andreas Communication partners with iTutor to provide an exclusive discount for Learning Can't Wait listeners of 40% off their noise-canceling headsets. Head to https colon forward slash forward slash andreacommunications.com forward slash itutor forward slash today to access this limited offer. IPVO is making online learning simple for educators and students alike. Their affordable and lightweight document cameras let teachers simply plug and play to share anything. Homework, live demos, PowerPoints, videos, and more from anywhere. Compatible with any device, teachers can make the most of their document cameras with creative filters, time lapses, stop motion, and more through IPVO's free software, Visualizer. IPVO and iTutor have partnered to provide a 20% discount to all Learning Can't Wait listeners. Visit IPVO.com forward slash iTutor to upgrade your technology today. Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. Welcome back, everybody, to today's episode of the Learning Can't Wait podcast. With us, I have Dr. Christian Wilkins, an associate professor and the chair of the Education and Human Development Department at SUNY Brockport. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Haley, it's a pleasure to be invited. Thanks. I'm so excited you're here today for a host of reasons. You traveled through time and space to make sure you are home today to be able to record. And for that, I thank you. And I'm excited for you to share a little bit about, as we talk, all of your work in education with teachers and the teacher pipeline. I think today's episode entitled, Where Have All the Teachers Gone? is going to be an interesting one. Well, you've certainly landed on a topic near and dear to our hearts. So I'm glad you're highlighting it. Well, to start us off, I think it's always helpful for our listeners to get some context on our speakers. So I'd love if you could please share how you became the professional and personal version of yourself. Well, it, it, I would say it, it was kind of an accident. I was supposed to be a veterinarian as I grew up. That's what I always wanted to be. But in college, I started to TA. I was a teaching assistant for an intro biology class. And it turned out I loved it. I loved working with students. I loved figuring out how to explain complicated things quickly. And I just really enjoyed spending time in a learning environment. So I got off the veterinary hamster wheel and landed in teaching down in the Mississippi Delta as my first teaching job and have grown from there. And I, I keep learning new things. I never meant to end up in college either. <laughs> and yet here I am. 
you never intended to start in a college yourself or attend a college yourself, and now here you are wow that is a different trajectory than i think i was anticipating that you would share here talk to me a little bit about now that you are working at suny brockport and your experience how you came to lead a department that is so focused on developing teachers well again i'm still not sure about that they haven't fired me yet but i was hired as a foundations teacher so i i came to brockport after having taught both at the high school level in science and in special education and my day-to-day -day is supposed to be teaching like intro to teaching uh those foundational diversity and education sort of classes and i've had a great time doing that our department is fairly big one neat thing we do in college which we never do in k-12 schools is we rotate leadership so i got here you know part of the part of the job here is to write and publish and get tenure and once once that was wrapped up on my end i i landed in a leadership role not really intending to do that but more as a caretaker than anything else and i i still feel that as a responsibility like i care about my colleagues i care about the profession i want to do right by everyone but a neat aspect of the work that I never expected is that when you rotate leadership, there's an accountability to each other that I think is not necessarily felt elsewhere. Like a school principal is never going to step down and be an English teacher after they're done principaling. That just almost never happens. But it does here in college. And so the, the people I'm supervising right now whether I'm accountable to them immediately or later, I, I am aware that these are always going to be my colleagues and this is always going to be my department to whom I owe my best service. So it's it's been a lot of learning. The pandemic has been interesting and scary in a lot of ways. I know we're going to talk about that, but the, the context of higher ed has been eye-opening in that sense for me. It's almost as if you slipped in that notion of how schools, K-12 schools, don't operate with rotating leadership and secondary education does. I wonder if that's a model for the future. <laughs> yeah, I I have no idea. It's how it was when, when I got here. Uh, it's how it will continue after I step down as chair. I, I, I do see it as a strength here, but it, it would take a little bit of reinvention to apply that to a K-12 model, I think. I bet that's true. <laughs> I bet that's true indeed. So I'm I'm thinking about your own schooling and how your path took on a different journey than you were anticipating. When you think back to your own time in school, were there moments that stand out as transformative to you as a learner? I think so. It it turns out my best teacher, I I like this question. I, I thought about it a lot. My best teacher in high school is actually my cross country coach. I love it. Tell me more. He was a guy, Coach Cole. He always emphasized improvement, right? Like I was slow and pathetic when I joined the cross country team sophomore year. And yet he was unfailingly positive. He said, everybody can get better. And that's the fastest people, the slowest people like me. We can all get better if we work hard and have faith and support each other. So he was a big fan of teamwork. He was a big fan of, of investing yourself and gradually improving. And that, and that really stuck with me. And as far as I can tell, he's right. And, and he's right in all kinds of domains. That, that certainly helped me. And yeah, in college, I just remember watching a whole lot of Bill Nye, the science guy. And, 
and just find finding humor and inspiration and finding people who are passionate about what they do and just want to share that joy like why was this tv show such a hit well because pretty clearly bill and i loved the heck out of what he was doing and i think we all feel that in a class when teachers are the same way so I, I don't know, watching Bill Nye and being on the cross country team, those were transformative for me. I tell you that lesson you named from your coach. I, I have a six-year-old and he is definitely in the like, I'm faster, I'm better, I'm this than ever. And I have, my dad always laughs, but I tell my son, you know, there's always going to be someone faster than you. Um, and his new thing is to tell me like, name the peak athlete. We're watching soccer right now. It's the World Cup. Christian, right. mom, yeah. no one's better than Ronaldo. It's okay, but... Okay, maybe there's one best, but like after that, oh, everyone has someone better than them. And I think it's a good lesson that it's not about comparing yourself to others. It's about being the best version of yourself, which is really hard for a six-year-old to grapple with. However, maybe retrospectively, he'll have a realization just as you have. I, I'm grateful you're sharing that as a parent. It really, uh, really strikes home for me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when you're six, you're supposed to climb up on top of whatever's in front of you. <laughs> and look down on stuff that that's, I would say, developmentally appropriate. He's fine. Yeah, I mean, he's on it. You're right. You're right. But in terms of Bill Nye, right, to go to your second example, whew, you can tell when a teacher loves what they do. You can, you can tell when they love their students, they love their content, they get excited about getting students excited. Oh, man, it, it, it's tough to think that this profession, and obviously we're, that's our topic today, this profession has so many more teachers who maybe don't feel that passion today for a whole host of reasons we'll get into. So maybe maybe we should just get into it. Like, If you were going to give a state of the union on education today, what key points would you make? It's hard to do this without a long historical windup, but I, I would say there are a couple of clear opportunities right now. So you were there, you remember in 2001, No Child Left Behind, we all decided the teachers were a big problem. And for a long time, they were the focus of a huge amount of effort to improve student learning. Like if teachers are the problem, all we've got to do is make sure that teacher quality improves and then everything will get better from there. One gift of the pandemic, I think at least early pandemic, is that we all realized how deeply valuable teachers actually are. You know, when when we didn't have them for a few months or even in a couple of cases, a few years, parents, communities, all of us realized, oh no, these are central human beings to our lives. We need them and we need them good at their jobs. We need them ready to inspire our kids. And we have pretty hard data now with the recent NAEP release that when we don't have them or when our learning environment changes drastically, like things don't go well. I guess right now the state of the union in teacher education is that we're aware of the value of teachers. And I think everybody's rooting for us. They might have different ideas about what to do from here, but I, I think there's more consensus now about the importance of quality educators in all manner of senses, not just from the technical, like are they the top-notch college graduate, but like are they good with our six-year-olds is a a deeply important question. And I guess the other thing that's become obvious because of the pandemic, uh, we've always known, we, we have this incredibly distributed model of public education in the United States. Like New York State alone has 700 different school districts 
plus BOCES, plus private schools, plus kids who homeschool, uh, it's, it's, it's really fractured. And so the experience of kids is really deeply variable. And we've seen that through the pandemic. Kids in wealthy districts who are surrounded by families who have high educational attainment, they've done fine. You know, it was a disruption. It was an inconvenience. Nobody liked being on Zooms all day, but those kids did okay. It was all of the communities who were under-resourced going into the pandemic. Low-income schools serving a lot of Title I kids, communities of color, uh, students with disability, they got underserved throughout the pandemic and they're coming out worse on the other side. So I, I think right now we're all seeing the harm that that incredibly localized system of public education can do if you just let it keep running. Like the haves keep having and the have-nots continue to face harm. So I, this is not probably at all popular, but it's a clear argument on my end anyway for a more coherent centralized system of public education that has a much stronger federal role in addressing inequalities. We don't have that now. I, I think it's pretty clear to my thinking that we need it. Whether or not we've got the stomach to go after it, I have no idea. An episode of the podcast that's being released very shortly is on this exact topic, fractured cool. learning in education today. It's actually at the school level. So like the learning experience, how varied they are within a school building, no less at the meta level, right, which is what you're naming amongst schools or between schools is an even greater amount of variance as you're, as you're naming. Your expertise is, of course, in New York State, but you have some experience in rural education as well, right? You've, you recently, I alluded to your travel plans. You recently got back from Alaska where you do some work with schools. Tell us a little bit about how different the experience for teaching and learning is in Alaska versus here in New York and how you think the pandemic affected that community as opposed to what you see in New York. It's interesting that jumping between macro and micro. So so in my community, I'm I'm just outside Rochester, New York. There's a, a street, Monroe Avenue, that goes between one of the wealthiest communities in New York State, Pittsburgh, and one of the lowest performing districts, Rochester, in New York State. They're two miles apart. So you can drive from one community to the next and get a world-class education where 99% of the kids go to college. And we just got New York State testing data released last week where 2% of the kids are proficient in math in the Rochester City School District. Just 2%. Wow. Same is true if you look across at Alaska and New York. So I'm, I'm back from Kalskag, which is in the Southwest region. In New York State, historically anyway, we, we've had an oversupply of teachers. So we have a lot of colleges, we have a lot of universities, we grow a lot of teachers here. And that has generally kept up with demand from school districts. So people go to college here, they gain teaching credentials, they get hired. And in fact, there's more of them than New York State can hire, so they go elsewhere. They go south, they go west, they follow demography. In Alaska, they don't grow that many teachers. There aren't that many colleges and universities. They only supply about 20% of the teachers they need. So Alaska is an importer of teachers. That used to be fine when the oil prices were up and salaries were good. It isn't anymore. And Alaska got away with teacher pensions. And so right now the teacher shortages up there are huge. 
they're ongoing. They are going to be multiple years uh, continuing into the future. And what I saw in my district is really common throughout Alaska. The district is importing a lot of teachers from the Philippines. So 75% of the teachers in the district where I work are on J-1 visas from the Philippines. They have temporary credentials. That, that is not a pathway to citizenship. So none of these teachers are staying. They can stay for three years and then they got to go home. And so this is kind of analogous to, you know, I'm sure you've pondered programs like Teach for America or my teacher prep program was a Mississippi teacher corps at, at the University of Mississippi. These sort of temporary get them into the classroom for a little while, but don't expect anybody to stay. Alaska's doing that almost statewide right now, knowing from day one that these are not people they can keep, but they need people in front of the classroom. It is a very, very unique set of circumstances that are not unique across the part of America that is very rural. I had a conversation with uh, a gear up leader from the state of Montana who shared a similar I need to import teachers, although they're not using the same model as what you're naming in Alaska. They are really challenged by teacher shortages. And just due to the geogra- the lack of geographic or excuse me, population density in the rural parts of the state, which are actually higher levels of lower, excuse me, lower levels of density than Alaska statewide in Montana they're facing some significant need to attract people to the to the field, to the geographic region uh, in order to serve students. And, you know, the challenge is that the teachers can't be invented out of nowhere, right? You, you can't just produce a teacher overnight. So it definitely feels like what you're naming from the communities you're working with in Alaska is an attempt to rectify a significant problem with many, many barriers in front of them. Well, what I think what you're talking about as well is is common across all states and territories in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, it takes a long time to grow a teacher. And so you'll see different jurisdictions chasing different ideas. Like Florida has become notorious for their, hey, if you served in the armed forces, you can get an emergency teaching credential just by signing on the dotted line. Because I guess the theory is you can manage a class. You see places that have really high capture rates of charter schools, like in Washington, D.C. or New Orleans or across Michigan or Arizona, where you don't have to have a credential to start teaching, but like Alaska's J-1 visa heavy approach, the question of retention and effectiveness immediately comes up. Like, okay, maybe we can fill today's needs, but are these gonna be people who are any good at teaching and will they wanna stay? Kind of become tomorrow's question. <laughs> And and that that does speak to I I think we are at a serious crisis point for a lot of schools and rural schools are certainly being hit as hard as anyone. Absolutely. You so earlier as you started to describe what your work is in Alaska, you mentioned that there's a little bit of a surplus in New York State. So you know there are some trends that we're noticing in the teacher prep space. Let's let's talk about those trends first, and then we can dial into New York State, which is a bit of an outlier in some sense. Um, so, so what are the trends? You know, you're 
you're in um, higher education, you're helping teachers become teachers. What do you notice is occurring in the fields around you? One of the big trends over the last 10 years has been enrollment declines in teacher prep. So nationwide, we're down about a third since 2010. And that's that's true in New York State as well. We are We are down substantially over the last decade or so in terms of who signs up and says, yeah, I want to teach. The, and that's overall, right? But but teaching isn't any one specific thing, right? You need math teachers, you need third grade teachers, uh, you need science and technology, te- you need special education teachers. And so the teacher shortage is likewise a bunch of different shortages. And so too is the landscape variable. Like a lot of people want to become elementary teachers and a lot of people want to become high school social studies teachers. I don't know why social studies, but that's really common. A lot of people want to do that. I know. But that's not where the jobs are. Like there is huge demand for special education, for world languages, for science and math teachers, uh, for CTE teacher, like career and technical education teachers. We can't find nearly enough of them, nor can we find enough people who want to teach in cities or rural places like there's really high competition still for suburban jobs uh, that pay well, that are stable, that have a professional workforce that uh, can do things like mentoring over time. And there's very low supply in some of the stretched and under-resourced environments like, like rural Alaska or like Rochester, New York. So the, the overall decline is real And that's made all these very specific localized subject area or geographical shortages even worse. So we we see in in Rochester, for example, nobody's coming into the bilingual education pipeline. And so what does the city district do? They hire anybody who can speak Spanish or Nepali or whatever the language background is. Teaching background be damned. You just need someone who can speak the language and talk to families and kids. Is that good for kids in the long term? No, <laughs> but it, it's hard to blame people for doing what they have to to keep the lights on and and uh, the wheels turning. So yeah, sorry to jump around from. You're you know it's it's impossible to talk about this topic in a focused manner because of all of the different components you're naming, and it's funny honestly like the debate that went on over the the middle part of or sorry, beginning of the school year in 2022 around, is there a teacher shortage actually infuriated me because there has always been a teacher shortage. It is not in every subject. It is not in every, uh, it's not every socioeconomic region. It is in historically marginalized communities in particular certification areas. That's not new. However, the pandemic did exacerbate a lot of the issues that we were facing one because conditions have become more challenging within schools right there was a recent article published actually just at the end of last week chris you and i haven't even had time to talk about it by annenberg center about what is happening to the prestige of the profession and why are folks shying away from becoming teachers right that that relates to the enrollment issues you're naming so so none of this is new but it is it is getting worse as time goes on however an interesting note, this is not what SUNY Bradford is seeing. So talk to me a little bit about the trends that your community is noticing at home. 
We've been growing. I, I don't know why. <laughs> our our enrollment has gone up in teacher education a little over 36% in the last five years. Like we we have seen strong entrance into teacher prep at Brockport, both at the undergrad and graduate level. So we've got that's amazing. Here, that's great. Traditional <laughs> like high school kids are coming to Brockport and they're saying, I want to teach. And career changers, like adults, are saying, you know what, I have a degree, I went out into the world, I worked for a while, and now I know I want to go into education. I don't have great theories about why we're heading in a different direction. You know, if you talk to my colleagues, they tell you, oh, we're awesome. And our <laughs> reputation, I think to an extent, we are responsive to a local or regional market. Right. So for a long time, we had oversupply of a lot of different kinds of teachers. So our biggest program is in childhood education. A lot of our graduates took degrees, got certified and then had to go elsewhere for their first teaching jobs. You know, they go to North Carolina, they go to Georgia, they go to California or Alaska and they come back after gaining a couple of years of experience and being they could now be competitive in a local job market. with teacher shortages becoming so known, like everybody knows we need more teachers now. I think it's clear to college students and adult learners that you can get a job, right? You can go and get a teaching credential and you can stay local and get a teaching job now in a way that you couldn't before. So I, I guess my, my strongest theory is people are aware of market conditions and they're aware that schools are looking and and that's even true, like every single one of our math and science teachers is getting job offers before they finish student teaching. Our Spanish and French teachers are all getting job offers before they student teach. People are like, oh, you exist and you have a heartbeat. Come sign on the dotted line. It's not great for kids in schools, but from a person who wants a job standpoint, this is a it's a very obvious and good time to get into the field. I like that spin, right? I like that spin on it because you may not be able to pinpoint exactly why Brockport isn't facing it. I think you've, you've proposed a few good theories about the origins of the success that Brockport is seeing with recruiting and attracting and retaining teacher talent um, or soon to be teacher talent. But what's really mind blowing to me as I listen to you is how these folks are getting jobs before they're even done with their formal trainings. Well, and you and I have talked about it with uh, with iTutor along the way. the The landscape of educational or or occupational opportunity for people going into education is huge now. They can stay here in Western New York. They can pretty much name a context where they might want to teach. You know, I, I talk to college students all the time now about how they can go teach in other states, and they're like, "Really." I kind of want to go live with my sister in North Carolina and uh, that's easy. We can figure out the reciprocity and you'll get work down there. So it it opens up their opportunities in ways that I think weren't real to them before. Now, the cost of all of that is that schools all over the place and kids all over the place need quality people and are really struggling to find them. So they're, I don't feel great <laughs> about that element of it, I feel great for our graduates in that they can immediately get work and make a difference in kids' lives. 
in a way where, you know, they may have had to substitute teach for a while before they really got a real chance. The landscape is definitely changing. Again, pan pandemic was a little bit of an accelerant on that, as, as are a lot of a lot of other factors. I'm curious what opportunities you think there are to improve the teacher pipeline. Well, one of your questions that, that you mentioned earlier is about apprenticeships and, and different models that will get teachers into the field. I'm super excited about them. So in terms of what's good about what's happening right now, there's federal money, there's state money, and there's local money being invested into apprenticeships and residencies right now in a way that I've never seen before. So for example, the United States Department of Labor right now is pushing a whole ton of money into teacher apprenticeships, which have a couple of cool features. Like number one, you're absolutely right. It takes a long time to grow a teacher. That comes with opportunity costs, right? Like if you have to go to school for four years and spend tens of thousands of dollars to get a teaching credential, that limits who teaches, right? If you can't afford those costs, either in time or treasure, you won't become a teacher. And so apprenticeships offer a different model that give income during your teacher preparation so that I, I think we'll see the door is wider open to more entrance into teaching than it's ever been and especially a more diverse group. So teaching is notoriously white. It's about 79% white right now. It's also disproportionately female. It's about 76% nationwide women in teaching. And that doesn't match the kids, right? We, we now have a P12 population that is majority non-white. It's half young men. Uh, we need a much more diverse teaching force and I think apprenticeships are one way that could really support entry into the field among people who never would have taught before. So I love as much as I'm coming from a traditional college teacher prep side, that is not the only way to get into teaching. Full disclosure, I went through Mississippi Teacher Corps. I'm married to a TFA alum. They're still talking good people to one too. right now. Right? Like <laughs> these alternative models that don't come with high entry costs, I think are onto something that's really important and valuable. And I, I would say, let, let's go for it and see where we get. I don't know what they'll mean for uh, teacher effectiveness or teacher retention down the road, but right now we know we have huge, huge issues in attracting people to the profession in the first place. So why not? I think you're naming some significant, I like ideas that are being used, implemented right now around the country with outcomes that we still are questioning. However, I like the way you're saying, let's try it, let's study it, let's check on its efficacy. I also am really grateful for you naming the need to increase the teacher diversity. One, because of the lack of it right now. Two, because of the research proven benefits for particularly children of color to have teachers of their likeness in front of them in the classroom. I think it's a often overlooked need and so as I explore more about apprenticeship models, they're newer to me as a human. That is one that I am excited to explore a little bit further and the opportunity and upside there. So thanks for naming that for our listeners today and for me. This is going to sound like I'm slagging on my profession, and I'm really not. But it, it's hard to look at our current landscape 
of student achievement and outcomes and be terribly proud of where we are yet, right? Like this, you look at our recent 2022 NAEP long-term trends, we are not where we need to be, right? Like kids deserve so much better. And so any argument that just says, well, we can't possibly do anything new, we need to preserve the way things are is, is suspect, right? So I, I'm all for new models that get new people into the field, because it's a very weak case to say, well, we ought to just keep doing what we've been, what we've been doing. We, we know that we will get incredibly unequal results with kids if we just kept doing the same things over and over. Uh, so I, I am optimistic about new and creative ideas. I, I'm worried about how we take care of teachers. You know, one, one of the things that I'm sure you've been thinking about a lot is what it means to be a teacher right now. And I know that's not our topic right now, but teacher, what a shortage, what do teacher shortages do? They make teaching right now harder because everybody's covering for everybody else. Experienced teachers are mentoring all these newbies. It it's hard to be a teacher right now. So so to an extent, what am I worried about? I'm I'm worried about not just attracting new teachers. I'm worried about retaining the people doing it right now. And as far as the research goes, the, the reasons we are able to retain people is is if they have good working conditions. You know, if they like their jobs, if they feel like they're effective, they stay. And the second they feel like they're not effective anymore, they go do something else. It is a very concerning topic, talking about the teacher pipeline, talking about the conditions of teachers today. And I also agree with you wholeheartedly, Chris, that anyone who thinks we should continue on the path we're on right now is sorely not looking at the full landscape of education in our country and the impact we're having on children and the impact we're having on the people who are expected to teach children. If ever, and I feel like my listeners who listen to repeated episodes, and maybe it's just my mom, hi, mom, um, will say, they hear me say this all the time, but if you aren't here to continually improve, then you're in the wrong profession. Education should be about growth, growth for students, growth for teachers, which is what we call professional development very often, but also growth for our model to reflect what the current science tells us and what we see is not working. And so I think you and I could probably spin off a few episodes talking about growth and, and how and why and, and ideate on all sorts of initiatives and efforts we see happening, whether it be right here in the United States or even across and overseas that are worth exploring. I don't know that we have time for it today, but I am I am very much aligned with you that we really all need to take pause. And if not now, when? Because this is a ripe opportunity for changing a lot of what we see around us. Agreed. I'm I'm circling back in my brain to to Bill Nye, right? Who I I blame to a certain extent for for me landing in this work. We need to make sure that there's joy with kids every day. You know, like like you mentioned, kids know when they walk into a classroom if their teachers want to be there, if their teachers are stressed, if their teachers feel confident and joyful in the work. We need to make sure that every kid does have an opportunity to have that teacher in front of the classroom who's sharing that excitement, who's loving what they do and loving the heck out of the kids. And and I know that feels very squishy when we're talking about numbers and retention and recruitment and apprenticeship models. But 
but that's the heart of it, right? You you have to have good, caring adults with kids every day. And I, I guess I'm agnostic on the model that gets them there. And right now, we, we don't clearly have enough of them. And so I, I think it's a good time to be talking about expanding the models and expanding who teaches. I love that. You know, it's a perfect segue for my close-up question, which is what I always ask my guests. Um, But it's a perfect segue because there are teachers entering the field every day. So we know that, you know, there are still thousands of teachers every year becoming teachers and entering classrooms for the first time. So what advice, Chris, would you give a teacher starting their career? I think you've got to find joy in being around young people. This may seem obvious to someone like you who's been thinking about education and doing it for so long, but I'm telling you, Haley, every semester, we have student teachers who come come to class and they're like, I guess I didn't realize what this was going to be like. And, And you ask them a little bit like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? People don't know what teaching is like until they try it. And and what it's like is you're spending all day, every day with young people, right? You're you're in a room, you got five or 15 or 25 kids that you've got to motivate and inspire and engage like all day long. Every day the kids keep showing up. And if you don't love that, it's not the right work. And you gotta find that out somehow. And so I, I guess my best advice is. People are going to tell you 8,000 things, right? Like use this curriculum or use that approach to classroom management or do that professional, whatever it is. Sure, they're probably all fine ideas. The thing that's going to keep you doing it and that's going to keep you good with kids is if you love being around those kids, if those learning experiences are meaningful and fun and engaging, you're going to love what you do and you're going to keep at it and you're going to work hard to learn more and keep growing in the profession. So. I hate to be as simple as like find joy in the work, love being around kids, but that that's kind of where I'm coming from. But given what we know to be true about teaching, that is the work. So I, I think it's very apt for you to close on that note and to share that piece of advice. Chris, I love hearing your perspective and I'm grateful you joined the podcast today to share about what you're noticing in the fields. You are in it really close to some of the challenges that are it being experienced by schools around the country and also what hope you have for the future and ideas you have. So thank you so much for joining today. Well, Haley, thanks. It's, I mean, this is work I love and hold dear to my heart. So thank you. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure and uh, hi to your mom also. <laughs> <laughs> hi to my mom <laughs> and all the other listeners joining us today. Thank you for tuning in. listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com. Your campus needs teachers now, and we've got you covered. With over 1,500 state-certified educators from across the U.S. ready to serve both your part-time and full-time requirements, iTutor is perfectly poised to virtually meet all your academic needs with live educators in and around school hours. Learn how today at itutor.com.